just a few minutes ago. If you remember from a couple weeks ago when we started talking about Psalm 119, it's made up of 22 sections because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. They're all consonants. All the vowels were spoke with the uh, gutturals with their throat that they used, but there are 22 consonants, and each one of the verses start with the letter that is represented in that section. So we have Aleph, which is the first eight verses. That would be kind of like our A. And then they have Beit is the second one, and that is the one that we're looking at. You're familiar with this Hebrew word probably without knowing it, because it means house. And you have in the scriptures cities, you have Bethel, which in Hebrew would be Bethel, which would be house of God. And then at Christmas we say Bethlehem. Uh, we would say Bethlehem, but it's the house of bread. And that's where David and Jesus were from. And then you have in rabbinical school when you were growing up, if you were Jew- Jesus in his day, there were three houses or three schools that you went to depending on your age. You started off learning the Bible at the age of five in Beit Sefer, which is the house of the book, meaning the Bible. Then you'd have Beit Talmud, house of learning. And finally, if you were really good, you'd meet the last requirement, the last school, Beit Midrash, which is the house of study. That's why in the text that is before us in verse 12, the psalmist says, teach me. See, Beit, the little Hebrew letter that is the beginning of every line in every one of these verses means house of. And what the psalmist wants to talk to you and I about this morning is the house of purity, the house of holiness, we might say. And the first lesson there is really a rhetorical question. That's how the curriculum on purity begins. And it's really the only section out of all 22 in Psalm 119 that begins with a question. And it is a crucial question. When the psalm was written, this Psalm 119, it was a question that everybody was asking because everyone in Israel wanted to be pure. It was part of their Levitical code. You couldn't worship God unless you were pure. And everybody was asking that question. Contrast that with our day. How can a young person keep his way pure? My title this morning is, it's the question no one is asking. In our day, it's not a lesson that anyone is interested in learning. No one, virtually no one, is seeking to enroll voluntarily in the school of God's purity. Instead, today, the questions that are being asked are not, how can I live a lifestyle of purity? But rather today, people are asking, how can someone live a lifestyle of pleasure? Not How can I be holy, but how can I be happy? Those are really the paramount questions that are being asked today. And if you haven't noticed, and I I guess everyone here has, it's pretty obvious that in our day we live in a sexual revolution. As disciples of Jesus, there are a few questions in my mind as I look around at our culture and society today that could be more relevant and more applicable and more needed for us and our children than the question that this psalm asks in the house of purity. How can you and I today, in an impure society, how can we live a pure life? All around us, the cultural creed is being shouted all the time. The fulfilled life is a sexually fulfilled life. Listen to Leslie Canold. She says this, she's not a believer. 
The central moral value in a modern multicultural society is autonomy. The right of individuals to determine the course of their own lives according to their own needs and their own values. We live in a day where no longer is God's word the authority by people by which they live their lives. LGBTQ, homosexual marriage, transgenderism, living together, pornography, adultery at our all-time high levels, and they are all expressions and results of divorcing our lives and our culture from the authority of the word of God. The Psalms... The Psalms here are considered wisdom literature. And I say that to tell you this, because everyone under the sound of my voice today must make a choice. Because in wisdom literature, there's only two ways. It's always antithetical. It's always this or that. And the psalmist is putting before us this. See, you're either living your life your way or God's way. You either view purity from the world's perspective or from the word's perspective. And see... The question is, how will you and your teens answer this question this morning? More importantly, perhaps, is this. How are you answering that question? The structure of the psalm is pretty clear and simple. There is God's purity question. That's verse, the very first verse, verse 9. And from then on out is God's purity answer. So we've asked the question, how can you live a pure life in an impure world today? God says, let me give you the answer. And the answer is, in general, let me say it that way, the word of God. The word of God is the key to staying on the path of purity in an impure world. How can God's word help you and I this morning? As those who truly know him and are seeking to follow him, how can we live that? Because there's two ways. And they both have to do with the Bible, the Word of God. One is about attitudes, and one is about actions. So we're going to unpack them one at a time. Let me start with having the right attitude toward Scripture. So we're going to talk about purity, and we're going to do this this morning. We're going to go from the inside to the outside. We're going to talk about, first of all, saying no to sin, and then saying yes to Scripture. So listen to the psalmist in verse 9. He says, How can a young man keep his way pure? The answer, and simple, and then the rest of it is an explanation of what that answer means. By guarding it, it meaning what? His way, his way, his lifestyle, his behavior, his code of conduct, the way that he lives his life every day. How does he do it? Because you keep your life pure by guarding it. How? According to your word. The word guard in the text means just that, to watch over, to keep it, to observe, to protect it. I read an article, see if you can figure it out. The title of the article this week I read was The Most Heavily Guarded Place on the Planet. What do you think it was? Yes, Fort Knox. The subtitle of it was this, Good Luck Trying to Get In There. We all used the phrase, at least when I was growing up we did, that's as secure as Fort Knox. That was the standard, right? It's the U.S. Bullion Deposit. And and, and let me tell you about how they protect it. It is surrounded by a steel fence. The building itself is made of concrete-lined granite and reinforced steel. It is equipped with the latest and most modern protective devices of which they will not tell anyone what they are. 
is equipped with all of that and the vault grounds, meaning the grounds that surround the vault where all the gold is stashed, it is surrounded by landmines. You would have to know a security system just to be able to know where all of them are, or you can step on any given step, you would step on a landmine. They have electric fences all the way around everything. They have laser-triggered machine guns. No one is manning them, but if your heat sensor or your movement passed it and you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, the machine guns would open fire on you and they have radar detection as well. They have guards at all four corners of the facility at all times, 24-7, 365. Up to 40,000 soldiers are there on a daily basis. And I didn't even get into the vault itself, which is completely impregnable. I read that article and I thought, what in the world? Why would there ever be so much protection? And then I thought about this. Because there's a treasure inside. Right? There's a treasure inside. Let me ask you. Do you see your purity as that precious? Do you? Honestly. Not by what you say, but by your lifestyle. See, later on in the psalm, he says, God, I value your word, I treasure your word as in all riches. I think the psalmist, if he was here, would say this, take all the gold bullion and it's not nearly as important as your purity. Are you guarding it? See, let me tell you this in principle. Let me state it for you so you can remember. A precious purity will be a protected purity. Let me say it again. A precious purity purity will be a protected purity. We all know this is true because we protect the things that we value. We have, and I'm gonna, we could go in the parking lot and you could have alarms on your car, right? You ever been in a parking lot, in a grocery store, eh, eh, it keeps going off and off? Why? Because we protect our cars. They're valuable. We have locks on the doors. We have multiple locks on the door. We have house alarms, locks, video surveillance. We advertise that we have video surveillance. You know, ADT protects this house right? We have doorbells now that when you have the doorbell, you can see who's at the doorbell at all times. We have password protections for our accounts on the internet. Why? Because our finances are at stake. And so we have apps that protect our passwords that are secret to us so that nobody can get into them. Why all the protection in our world? Why? Because we know this, we protect what we value. If you value your purity Yours and your children's, you will protect it. You will protect what they watch. You will have guidelines and controls on your phones, on your TVs, and certainly on the internet. The things that you look at, allow people to look at what you allow yourself to look at, the things that you read. See, you'll care about that and you'll protect them. And your kids won't like it and they'll think that you're interviewing on their privacy. And let me just say nicely, teenagers, you have none. You know why? Because we value your purity. You know why you have protections on your phone? Because your parents know the value of your purity more than you do most times. See, that's why we protect it. And the number one protection for your purity, the psalmist says, is this, God's word. Let me tell you this, you better have protection on the internet, on the TV, and on your phone, and all those controls. But let me tell you this, don't just check your kids' phones. Check if they're reading their Bible. It's the number one protection above everything else, everything else, everything else. 
Number one antivirus software. You want to protect your computer from viruses and it crashing and all that. It's called Total AV. The advertisement goes like this. Available on all platforms, 24-7 customer support, 4.9 out of 5 ratings. I got one better. God's word. It is the best anti-sin protection that you can possibly have. It is available 24-7 for every disciple, and it got a 5.5 out of a 5 rating. Why? You know what its job is, don't you? Its job is to protect your heart. See, purity is a pursuit. And all the talk in this section about the Word of God, can I tell you what it says? Verse 9, how do you cleanse your way? By guarding it according to your word. How does that happen? Here's how it happens. Listen, intentionally. That's how it happens. Holiness doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen because you hope it happens. It happens because you make it happen by the grace of God. See, with my whole heart I seek, listen, the pronoun, you See, you have to pursue God if you are to pursue purity. Notice what the psalmist doesn't say. He doesn't say, you know where purity comes from? You got to keep a checklist. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, okay, here's what pure people do. Do, boom, 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 check this off. Oh, and here's what pure people don't do. Boom, boom, boom. He doesn't do that. He doesn't start, you know what he says? Here's the first step. You go hard after God. Why? Because purity is first and foremost an inside job. It's about you and your relationship with God. It's not just about rules, although there are many. It's about a relationship. And so when the Bible says, with my whole heart I seek you, don't think heart and think emotions. That's American. In Bible, heart is who you are. It's the core of what you're really all about. So let me tell you this. Think this. Whole heart means whole person. With everything I have, everything, I'm going to go hard after God. Why? Because my purity is at stake. You must pursue God wholeheartedly if you would be pure wholeheartedly. And the way that God helps you, did you see it? The way that God helps you maintain and protect your purity is not simply something mechanical or functional. It is relational. That's why in the text, all those eight verses, there are 13 pronouns connected to every use of the word scripture, and there are eight different ones, 10 total. Hear it? Your word I seek you, your commandments, your word. I don't want to sin against you. Blessed are you, your statutes, your mouth, your testimonies, your precepts, your ways, your statutes, your word. You get it? It's not just the Bible. It's not just rules. It's God. It's his word. Purity is precious to you because God is precious to you. Unfortunately, when that's not true, and for some of God's people it isn't, it's not wholeheartedness that characterizes us. It's half-heartedness. The song says it well, doesn't it? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know what the psalmist says? God, I want to come after you, not half-heartedly, wholeheartedly. Why? Because if I don't, what's going to happen? Here's, listen to what it says. 
God, don't let me wander. Don't let me stray from your commandments. There are a lot of people who approach sanctification in their Christian life thinking that they can constantly be straying and still accomplish it through the Spirit. Half-hearted holiness. You know how it starts? It starts when we become lax in what we watch on TV and what we watch on the Internet. It becomes lax. See, can you imagine this? Remember the Fort Knox illustration? Imagine this. No one has tried to break in Fort Knox in a while. And so here's what they decided to do. They have a meeting, get together. We're going to turn off the electric fences. And we're going to take all the bullets out of the machine guns. And they won't be loaded anymore. And we're going to cut down half the amount of people that we have on duty. You would say, that'll never happen. Absolutely. Why? Because no matter how many times or not times it's been assaulted, this, this is true. It's still got the most valuable thing inside. All it takes is one attack and it's over. Fort Knox is not going to let its guard down. But why do we? Why do we let our guard down? You know what it looks like when you do that? You begin to think that you can handle being alone on the internet. May I say it nicely? You're wrong. You can't. That you can handle dating someone and being alone with them by yourself for long periods of time. You can't. It's foolish. Proverbs 28, 6 says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. You begin to believe the lies of the sexual revolution of our day, that sex before marriage, it can't be that wrong, for we love each other and, and we're committed to each other. It's a lie. You start elevating your happiness over your holiness. And what it results in, whether you recognize it or not, is that you become autonomous you become independent from the authority of God. And although you claim to be a Christian and you bring your Bible to church, you do not live by it in those areas of your life. It becomes less than authoritative, and now you make your choices. And as Leslie said, your own values based on your own needs. Pastor Walker, how can I keep that from happening? How can I keep from straying? How can I keep from half-hearted holiness? Psalmist says in verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart, purpose clause, that, that I might not sin against you. See, intentionality, purposeful. See, we have to fight sin purposely. And here's how we do it. We store up God's word in our heart. The word stored up is the word 30 times in the Old Testament. It's translated hide. It's translated stored. It's translated treasured. Job uses it in Job 23, 12. Listen to him. I have not departed from the commandments of your lips. Purity. I have not departed from them. Other people around me may not. I have not departed. But how did he do it? Ready? I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the, treasured the words of his mouth more than my food allotment you got to ask yourself the question when you read Psalm 119. How can I know if I treasure God's word or not? How can I know it? The answer, it will be my superior treasure. See the contrast? My daily food to keep me alive physically or God's word. And here's, you know, how, here's how he said, you know how serious the psalmist took it? Job took purity. He says, listen, when it comes to food or the food of the word of God, 
I have this one as my ultimate treasure. This is the superior. This is a treasure. This one's greater. Living spiritually is more important than even living physically. That's how we have to look at our purity. So let me show you what I mean. Mountain Dew, I have treasured in my heart. How does that happen? Well, if you're really a good Christian, that'll take place. But Mountain Dew is the superior soda. I don't drink all the other sodas. I drink this one. I drink it all the time. And I drink it far more than all the other ones. Why? Because it in itself is a treasure and I treasure it. Seriously? Let me tell you this. My wife, I have treasured in my heart. Why? She is the superior woman in my heart. She has no rivals for my affections, none. She is the superlative love of my life. She is a treasure and I treasure her. See what the psalmist says? That's how you fight sin. Sin offers you treasures, things that will make you feel good and happy. But can I tell you this? They are, listen, inferior. They are lesser than what God through his word offers you. Remember Moses in Hebrews 11? It says that he what? He turned his back on Egypt and the treasures of Egypt saying that the affliction with the people of God was a greater pleasure. Now that is a unbelievable statement that you would put all the advancements and power and position he had for 40 years in Egypt and all of the riches that went with it. And he said, that's a great treasure, but you know it's a greater one? Being afflicted with the people of God. It wasn't equal riches, wealth, power, equal rich. No, power, riches, wealth, and affliction and suffering with God. But it didn't matter what was connected with God because even if it was affliction, why? Because anything with God is better than anything this world has to offer. See that? That's how it works. It's a superior treasure that I might not sin against you. In Hebrew, that I might not Without any other or nothing, it says. In other words, we would say it this way. Without never sinning against you. That's what I want. I don't want to sin. Do you know what he's saying? Listen, I have to treasure God's word if I'm not going to treasure sin. What does that look like? I value it more. I value being committed to God and faithful to him more than being not tired. More than getting sleep. More than all those things. So when do I pray? Because I may have to be tired to do it. If I had to come to church and I'm exhausted, I still come. Why? Because I want to demonstrate the infinite value of God with all the choices that I make. So I do get in his word. And it doesn't matter how tired I am. And it doesn't matter how sleepy I am or exhausted I am. Why? Because I want to tell him. I want to show him. I want to prove to him every day by my little choices and my big choices that you are more to be treasured than anyone or anything, and that also means your word. So what does it look like? Well, I value and treasure what God's word says about sex and about gender way more than the world's ideas around me. But everybody's doing it, Pastor Walker. Nobody does what you're saying anymore. See, you have to have a treasure 
I don't treasure what my friends say. I don't treasure what the world says. I don't treasure what everybody else is doing. I don't treasure them half as much, not even close to the amount that what God has said to me. So what I look at and what I don't look at and how I live my life, see, you know what? It's about treasuring him and obeying his word. Why? Because it is supreme in the affections of my heart. And only when that attitude is built in about God's word into your life can you maintain your path of purity. So it means you have to have certain attitudes toward God's words. And those attitudes, valuing and treasuring it, turn into actions. When that level of purity is on the inside, then it'll make its way to the outside. And I call it holy, holy. W-H-O-L-Y, L-L-Y, H-O-L-Y. Holy, meaning all my whole life, inside and outside. I want them to match. I want, I want to have the supreme desire and I want them to manifest and express themselves in these sanctified deeds, this way I live my life. So right attitudes must lead to right actions and that's what the rest of the psalm is about, verses 12 through 17. It's not just saying no to sin, it's saying yes to scripture. And so the psalmist says in verse 12, I have stored up your word, verse 11. And then he says this, blessed are you. If you read the first section of Psalm 119, the first two verses are saying this, blessed are those, blessed are those. You do this and you will have the blessed, happy life. But now he changes his mind. Why? Because he wants you to get away from what you get out of it to have it centered and soaked and saturated in God. See, here's what the psalmist is saying. It's not just following a bunch of rules. It's not just keeping Torah, the law. It's about God. It's about his happiness. Blessed are you. It's about what makes him happy, what pleases him. That's what comes from the heart that has the right inner attitude. So it's not about legalism. Purity is not about legalism. It's about love. Legalism asks this, what can I do and what can I not do? It asks, what's the minimum requirements for me? Okay, I come to a service, that's pure. Okay, if I do this, all right, I can't do this. And so I, what do I have to, what's the minimum I can do and still be considered pure? Legalism asks, well, how will this affect my happiness? If I say no to that and my friends don't like me anymore, and if I say no to that and my girlfriend says, and I say no and my boss says, see, that's legalism. But love it asks other questions. What is God like and what is he not like? How can I go beyond the requirements to show him how much I love him? Will this make God happy? What happens when you fall in love? As you fall in love, at least I think normally it would, you start taking mental notes I did this. And you begin to ask, what is Chris like and what she doesn't like? What is, makes her happy and what makes her upset? What does she love and what does she hate? And then here's what you do when you're in love. You start planning to live your life with those things in them, right? And so you're going to do this and not do this. And you used to do this and you stopped doing that. Why do you do that? What makes you do that? Why would you live that way just to see the look on their face? Right? Because you delight in them. 
You delight in them. And when you do this and they were, oh, that is so nice. And, and you take the initiative and they, you did this and you know it's what they really like. And, they, and, and their faces just shows everything. And you're excited about it. Why? Because you delight in them. So why do people, after being married for all these years, they get to the old little cabinet, they open it up and they pull out the pictures and they look at them all over again. Why after being married for 30, 40, 50 years do you watch your wedding video? I don't want to watch mine. That was bad, scary looking. <laughs> Why do you get out the picture frames and you look at them? You've seen them a million times. The answer, because the frame is so nice. No, because of who's in the picture, right? Why do you get out, and my dad had a box of these, and I've kept some myself over time. Why do you open the little box and, you, and the love notes that you wrote when you were engaged or first dating or whatever it was, and you read that note over and over again because the handwriting is so nice. No, because how great of the love you have for the person who wrote it. See, that's what God's looking for. That's why attitudes have to precede actions. Do you see the actions in the text? Verse 13, I declare I declare, and then verse 15 says, I meditate. And then twice in verse 14, I delight, I delight. You see the actions, all the things he's doing. It makes me want to meditate more. It makes me want to speak about God's word more. It makes me want to find my happiness in God. It's double delight. See, he is moved by it. Here's what he's moved by. God, I want the things that come out of your mouth to control the things that my, my mouth. You see how he says that? See, God, my ways, I want my ways to become more like your ways. He says it. God, I want my delights to be what you delight in. And so I get in the Bible every day and it forms me and molds me and shapes me because my goal is not to keep rules, but to have a relationship with someone. Why? Because I just want to see the look on his face. I want to know that, I want him to know that I love him. And what he hates, I hate. And what he loves, I love. So I don't think of God's word as too often many do, including God's people at times. I don't think of God's word as irrelevant and antiquated in a rule book filled with lists of do's and don'ts, something outdated in morality. As one commentator I saw on TV other said, it's a dinosaur. Can I tell you this? It's no dinosaur. For Christians, for those who follow Jesus, it is our joy. Why? Because it makes God happy, and if he's happy, I'm happy, see? So the question is, are you walking the path of purity this morning? Does your inside match your outside when it comes to holiness? Are they connected? There's a book that was written in mid to late 1800s by Oscar Wilde. And the name of the book was The Picture of Dorian Gray. It describes in the book a man who was exceptionally handsome, perhaps the best-looking young man of his day. He was so good-looking that he drew the attention of a very famous artist. And that famous artist met Dorian Gray and said, listen, I would really love to paint your portrait. You are absolutely a handsome guy, and I want to do it. And so he did it, and, it, and the portrait was beautiful. Um, Dorian Gray be became so entranced by the picture of himself, he began to wander this in his mind. Is there a way 
because I'm so handsome, that I could live anywhere I want to live and never be disfigured by it. That I can live a lawless lifestyle, but never have it show up on my face or my life. And so the author says that he did something in a Faustian way, which means he made a deal with the devil. And he makes a deal with the devil that that wish that he had would come true. And so from then on out, from that day forward, every evil thing and wicked thing he did showed up on the picture that he kept of himself that the artist had painted in his room with locked door. And he put a covering over it. He himself never changed through the years Everyone would grow older, but not Dorian Gray. Everyone would show on the outside the things that their lifestyle had brought to them, and some had even died, but not Dorian Gray. He remained unscathed by any of it until one day, until one day, the artist happened to come by his house and went into his room, uncovered the picture, and saw the picture that he had painted, and it was nothing like it because the picture was hideous. It was absolutely horrible. All the flesh on the face that was so beautiful had been taken away. It was skeletal, and he was just a monster to look at. You couldn't even begin to realize that it would have been Dorian Gray to begin with. Dorian Gray walks in on the artist looking at the picture, and the artist realizes, and seeing the two different contrasts between the picture and the man, what Dorian Gray was really all about. And in the book, Oscar Wilde writes this, that the artist tried to tell him that he needed to change his life, and he does it by saying this verse of Scripture to him. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Oscar Wilde wrote that in there. It made Dorian Gray angry to the point where he grabbed a knife and killed the artist. Now that the artist, the one who knew his true secrets, was out of the way, there was only one thing left for Dorian Gray to do. He took the knife and began to carve all the awful things out of the picture. But as soon as he thrust the knife into the canvas, he began to bleed himself. The canvas was restored to its original picture, and all of the evil and horrible things were transferred into Dorian Gray. And he laid on the floor and bled to death. A day later, when his friends found him, they didn't know it was him because he had been so transfigured deplorably by all the things that had gone on to his life. See, for Dorian Gray, his inside and his outside, they didn't match. And he tried to erase the canvas. He couldn't, and it killed him Can I tell you about one more picture as we close? There's a portrait of you as well. Did you know that? Maybe not one that you hide in your room under cloth, under secrecy. But this one is in the pages of Scripture, and it's called The Canvas of the Cross. And if you go there and you look at Jesus, who was marred more than any man, and the nails through his hands and feet and the crown of thorns and the the beating that he took, that he was, the Bible says, more disfigured than any man... Look at that picture because it is you and I. It is you and I in our sins. And see, Jesus said, but I'll be pierced for you. See, the knife was stuck into the canvas of your life and sins, and instead of you dying, Jesus did. 
Isaiah 53 says, for he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. See, can you look at the canvas of the cross because it's you? Jesus looks so hideous. Why? It is a picture of you and I in our sin and our disobedience. But Jesus was pierced. He took your picture so that you could look like him. See, this morning, if you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've never called on him to be your Lord and Savior, you can do that this morning. And see, your sins can be white as snow because the answer to your purity and your right being right with God is his word. And his word is alive. And if you put your faith in him, him and trust in him and what he has said to you about how your sins can be forgiven through his cross, death, and resurrection, see, you too, you can be pure. But perhaps as a Christian here today, let me tell you this, there is more similarity between you and Dorian Gray than you want to admit. You have a secret picture in your room and you think covering up with a cloth will help. It will not. He says, there's only one way. When you come to God's word and let it take over your heart, take over your life, make him and his word your treasure, then and then only will you not sin against God God brought you here this morning to tell you that from his word. He wants you today to re-enroll in the school of purity. How can someone live a life of purity? By guarding it according to his word. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, Would you take just a few moments this morning before we conclude and go to our small groups? Would you take some inventory, honest inventory? Take a look at the canvas of your heart. What kind of lifestyle, what kind of life are you painting? Is it a pure one or impure? If you've never come to Jesus Christ to be made holy, to be made pure, Only his cross death in your place can do that. He can take your picture because he died for it and he can turn you into looking like him, the most beautiful ever. Would you do that today? If you're a Christian this morning, you say, Pastor Walker, there are some things in my life, some sinful things, practices, habits, I don't go hard after God like I should. I don't treasure his word. I need to change. I need to have God through his spirit work in me. I want to be more like him. And I know I cannot ignore him or his word. My prayer goes for you this morning that God would reach your heart as well. Father, I pray that your wonderful word, your powerful word, as Hebrew says, that critiques the thoughts and intents of our hearts. We'll do that now. That those who are living lives of ungodliness would come to you because they want to know that their sins can be white as snow. And for God's people today who, are, who have strayed and wandered from the path of purity, Father, there's always room for them to come back to forgiveness, to restoration, to cleansing. Help them to obey your word as they've heard it this morning. 
for your honor and glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.